Chapter 32, Part 1 of Principles of Geology. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Sycamore Rockwell. Principles of Geology by Charles Lyell. Causes of Earthquakes and Volcanoes. Continued. Review of the Proofs of Internal Heat. Theory of an Unoxidated Metallic Nucleus. Whether the decomposition of water may be a source of volcanic heat, geysers of Iceland, causes of earthquakes, wave-like motion, expansive power of liquid gases, connection between the state of the atmosphere and earthquakes, permanent upheaval and subsidence of land, expansion of rocks by heat, the balance of dry land how preserved, subsidence in excess, conclusion. When we reflect that the largest mountains are but insignificant protuberances upon the surface of the earth, and that these mountains are nevertheless composed of different parts, which have been formed in succession, we may well feel surprised that the central fluidity of the planet should have been called into account for volcanic phenomena. To suppose the entire globe to be in a state of igneous fusion, with the exception of a solid shell, no more than from thirty to one hundred miles thick, and to imagine that the central heat of this fluid spheroid exceeds by more than two hundred times that of liquid lava, is to introduce a force altogether disproportionate to the effects which it is required to explain. The ordinary repose of the surface implies, on the contrary, an inertness in the internal mass which is truly wonderful. When we consider the combustible nature of the elements of the earth, so far as they are known to us, the facility with which their compounds may be decomposed and made to enter into new combinations, the quality of the heat which they evolve during these processes, when we recollect the expansive power of steam, and that water itself is composed of two gases which, by their union, produce intense heat, when we call to mind the number of explosive and detonating compounds which have been already discovered, we may be allowed to share the astonishment of Pliny that a single day should pass without a general conflagration. Excedit profecto omnia miracula, ulum diem fuisse quo non cuncta conflagarent. The signs of internal heat observable on the surface of the earth do not necessarily indicate the permanent existence of subterranean heated masses, whether fluid or solid by any means so vast as our continents and seas. Yet how insignificant would these appear if distributed through an external shell of the globe one or two hundred miles in depth? The principal facts in proof of the accumulation of heat below the surface may be summed up in a few words. Several volcanoes are constantly in eruption, as Tromboli and Nicaragua. Others are known to have been active for periods of sixty or even a hundred and fifty years as those of Sangay in Quito, Popocatepetl in Mexico, and the volcano of the Isle of Bourbon. Many craters emit hot vapours in the intervals between eruptions, and sulphur towers evolve incessantly the same gases as volcanoes. Steam of high temperatures has continued for more than twenty centuries to issue from stufas, as the Italians call them, Thermal springs abound not only in regions of earthquakes, but are found in almost all countries, however distant from active vents. And, lastly, the temperature in the mines of various parts of the world is found to increase in proportion as we descend. The diagram, figure 93, in the next page, may convey some idea of the proportion which our continents and the ocean bear to the radius of the earth. 
If all the land were about as high as the Himalaya mountains and the ocean everywhere as deep as the Pacific, the whole of both might be contained within a space expressed by the thickness of a line AB, and masses of nearly equal volume might be placed in the space marked by the line CD in the interior. Seas of lava, therefore, of the size of the Mediterranean or even the Atlantic, would be as nothing if distributed through such an outer shell of the globe as is represented by the shaded portion of the figure ABCD. If throughout that space we imagine electrochemical causes to be continually in operation, even of very feeble power, they might give rise to heat, which, if accumulated at certain points, might melt or render red-hot entire mountains, or sustain the temperature of stufas and hot springs for ages. Theory of an unoxidated metallic nucleus When Sir H. Davy first discovered the metallic bases of the earths and alkalis, he threw out the idea that those metals might abound in an unoxidated state in the subterranean regions to which water must occasionally penetrate. Whenever this happens, gaseous matter would be set free, the metals would combine with the oxygen of the water, and sufficient heat might be evolved to melt the surrounding rocks. This hypothesis, although afterwards abandoned by its author, was at first very favorably received both by the chemist and the geologist, for silica, alumina, lime, soda, and oxide of iron, substances of which lavas are principally composed, would all result from the contact of the inflammable metals alluded to with water. But whence this abundant store of unsaturated metals in the interior? It was assumed that, in the beginning of things, the nucleus of the earth was mainly composed of inflammable metals, and that oxidation went on with intense energy at first, till at length, when a superficial crust of oxides had been formed, the chemical action became more and more languid. This speculation, like all others respecting the primitive state of the Earth's nucleus, rests unavoidably on arbitrary assumptions. But we may fairly inquire whether any existing causes may have the power of deoxidating the earthly and alkaline compounds formed from time to time by the action of water upon the metallic bases. If so, and if the original crust or nucleus of the planet contained, distributed through it here and there, some partial stores of potassium, sodium, and other metallic bases, these might be oxidated and again deoxidated so as to sustain for ages a permanent chemical action. Yet, even then, we should be unable to explain why such a continuous circle of operations, after having been kept up for thousands of years in one district, should entirely cease and why another region, which had enjoyed a respite from volcanic action for one or many geological periods, should become a theatre for the development of subterranean heat. It is well known to chemists that the metallization of oxides, the most difficult to reduce, may be affected by hydrogen brought into contact with them at a red heat, and it is more than probable that the production of potassium itself in the common gun-barrel process is due to the power of nascent hydrogen derived from the water which the hydrated oxide contains. According to the recent experiments, also of Faraday, it would appear that every case of metallic reduction by voltaic agency from saline solutions in which water is present is due to the secondary action of hydrogen upon the oxide, both of these being determined to the negative pole and then reacting upon one another. It is admitted that intense heat would be produced by the occasional contact of water with the metallic bases, 
and it is certain that, during the process of saturation, vast volumes of hydrogen must be evolved. The hydrogen thus generated might permeate the crust of the Earth in different directions and become stored up for ages in fissures and caverns, sometimes in liquid form, under the necessary pressure. Whenever, at any subsequent period, in consequence of the changes affected by earthquakes in the shell of the Earth, this gas happened to come in contact with metallic oxides at high temperature, the reduction of these oxides might be the result. No theory seems, at first, more startling than that which represents water as affording an inexhaustible supply of fuel to the volcanic fires, yet is it by no means visionary. It is a fact that must not be overlooked that while a great number of volcanoes are entirely submarine, the remainder occur for the most part in islands or marine tracts. There are a few exceptions, but some of these, observes Dr. Delbeni, are near island salt lakes, as in central Tartary, while others form part of a train of volcanoes, the extremities of which are near the sea. Sir H. Davy suggested that when the sea is distant, as in the case of some of the South African volcanoes, they may still be supplied with water from subterranean lakes, since, according to Humboldt, large quantities of fish are often thrown out during eruptions. Mr. Dana also, in his valuable and original observations of the volcanoes of the Sandwich Islands, reminds us of the prodigious volume of atmospheric water which must be absorbed into the interior of such large and lofty domes, composed as they are entirely of porous lava. To this source alone he refers to the production of the steam by which the melted matter is propelled upwards even to the summits of cones three miles in height. When treating of springs and overflowing wells, I have stated that porous rocks are percolated by fresh water to great depths, and that seawater probably penetrates in the same manner through the rocks which form the bed of the ocean. But besides this universal circulation in regions not far from the surface, it must be supposed that, wherever earthquakes prevail, much larger bodies of water will be forced by the pressure of the ocean into fissures at great depths, or swallowed up in chasms, in the same manner as on the land, towns, houses, cattle and trees are sometimes engulfed. It will be remembered that these chasms often close again after houses have fallen into them, and for the same reason, when water has penetrated to a mass of melted lava, the steam into which it is converted may often rush out at a different aperture from that by which the water entered. The gases, it is said, exhaled from volcanoes, together with the steam, are such as would result from the decomposition of salt water, and the fumes which escape from the Vesuvian lava have been observed to deposit common salt. The emission of free muriatic acid gas in great quantities is also thought by many to favor the theory of the decomposition of the salt contained in seawater. It has been objected, however, that Monsieur Bosango did not meet with this gas in his examination of the elastic fluids evolved from the volcanoes of equatorial America, which only gave out aqueous vapor in very large quantity, carbonic acid gas, sulfurous acid gas, and sometimes fumes of sulfur. In reply, Dr. Dalbeni has remarked that muratic acid may have ceased to be disengaged because that volcanic action has become languid in equatorial America, and seawater may no longer obtain admission. Monsieur Gay-Lussac, while he avows his opinion that the decomposition of water contributes largely to volcanic action, called attention nevertheless to the supposed fact that hydrogen had not been detected in a separate form 
among the gaseous products of volcanoes. Nor can it, he says, be present, for in that case it would be inflamed in the air by the red-hot stones thrown out during an eruption. Dr. Davy, in his account of Graham Island, says, I watched when the lightning was most vivid and the eruption of the greatest degree of violence to see if there was any inflammation occasioned by this natural electric spark, any indication of the presence of inflammable gas, but in vain. May not the hydrogen, Guy Lussac inquires, be combined with chlorine and produce muriatic acid? For this gas has been observed to be evolved from Vesuvius and the chlorine may have been derived from sea salt, which was, in fact, extracted by simple washing from the Vesuvius lava in 1822, in the proportion of 9%. But it was answered that Sir H. Davy's experiments had shown that hydrogen is not combustible when mixed with muriatic acid gas, so that if muriatic gas was evolved in large quantities, the hydrogen might be present without inflammation. Monsieur Orbich, on the other hand, assures us that although it be true that vapour illuminated by incandescent lava has often been mistaken for flame, yet he clearly detected in the eruption of Vesuvius in 1834 the flame of hydrogen. Monsieur Gay-Lussac, in the memoir just alluded to, expressed doubt as to the presence of sulphurous acid, but the abundant disengagement of this gas during eruptions has been since ascertained. And thus, all difficulty in regard to the general absence of hydrogen in an inflammable state is removed. For, as Dr. Daubeny suggests, the hydrogen of decomposed water may unite with sulphur to form sulphuretted hydrogen gas, and this gas will then be mingled with the sulphurous acid as it rises to the crater. It is shown by experiment that these gases mutually decompose each other when mixed where steam is present the hydrogen of the one immediately uniting with the oxygen of the other to form water, while the excess of sulfurous acid alone escapes into the atmosphere. Sulfur is at the same time precipitated. This experiment is sufficient, but it may also be observed that the flame of hydrogen would rarely be visible during an eruption, as that gas, when inflamed in a pure state, burns with a very faint blue flame, which even in the night could hardly be perceptible by the side of red-hot and incandescent cinders. Its immediate conversion into water when inflamed in the atmosphere might also account for its not appearing in a separate form. Dr. Daubeny is of opinion that water containing atmospheric air may descend from the surface of the earth to the volcanic fossae, and that the same process of combustion by which water is decomposed may deprive such subterranean air of its oxygen. In this manner, he explains the great quantities of nitrogen evolved from volcanic vents in thermal waters, and the fact that air disengaged from the earth in volcanic regions is either wholly or part deprived of oxygen. Sir H. Davy, in his memoir on the phenomena of volcanoes, remarks that there was every reason to suppose in Vesuvius the existence of a descending current of air, and he imagined that subterranean cavities which threw out large volumes of steam during the eruption might afterwards, in the quiet state of the volcano, become filled with atmospheric air. The presence of ammoniacal salts in volcanic emanations and of ammonia, which is in part composed of nitrogen, in lava, favours greatly the notion of air as well as water being deoxidated in the interior of the earth. It has been alleged by Professor Bischoff that the slight specific gravity of the metals of the alkalis is fatal to Davy's hypothesis.
for if the mean density of the earth, as determined by astronomers, surpass that of all kinds of rocks, these metals cannot exist, at least not in great quantities, in the interior of the earth. But Dr. Daubeny has shown that if we take the united specific gravity of potassium, sodium, silicon, iron, and all the materials which, when united with oxygen, constitute ordinary lava, and then compare their weight with lava of equal bulk, the difference is not very material, the specific gravity of the lava only exceeding by about one-fourth that of the unoxidized metals. Besides, at great depths the metallic bases of the earths and alkalis may very probably be rendered heavier by pressure. Nor is it fair to embarrass the chemical theory of volcanoes with a doctrine so purely gratuitous as that which supposes the entire nucleus of the planet to have been at first composed of unoxidized metals. Professor Bunsen at Marburg, after analyzing the gases which escape from the volcanic fumaroles and sulfur towers of Iceland, and after calculating the quantity of hydrogen evolved between two eruptions, affirms, in contradiction of opinions previously entertained, that the hydrogen bears a perfect relation in quantity to the magnitude of the streams of lava, assuming the fusion of the last to have been the result of the heat evolved during the oxidation of alkaline and earthly metals, and this to have been brought about by the decomposition of water. Yet, after having thus succeeded in removing the principal objection once so triumphantly urged against Davy's hypothesis, Bunsen concludes by declaring that the hydrogen evolved in volcanic regions cannot have been generated by the decomposition of water coming in contact with alkaline and earthly metallic bases. For, says the professor, this process presupposes the prevalence of a temperature in which carbonic acid cannot exist in contact with hydrogen without suffering a partial reduction to carbon oxide, and not a trace of carbonic oxide is ever found in volcanic exhalations. At the same time, it will be seen by consulting the able memoirs of the Marburg chemist that he supposes many energetic kinds of chemical action to be continually going on in the interior of the earth, capable of causing the disengagement of hydrogen, and there can be no doubt that this gas may be a source of innumerable new changes capable of producing the local development of internal heat. Cause of Volcanic Eruptions the most probable causes of a volcanic outburst at the surface have been in a great degree anticipated in the preceding speculations on the liquefaction of rocks and the generation of gases. When a minute hole is bored in a tube filled with gas condensed into a liquid, the hole becomes instantly aeriform, or, as some writers have expressed it, flashes into vapor and often bursts the tube. Such an experiment may represent the mode in which gaseous matter may rush through a rent in the rocks and continue to escape for days or weeks through a small orifice, with an explosive power sufficient to reduce every substance which opposes its passage into small fragments or even dust. Lava may be propelled upwards at the same time and ejected in the form of scoriae. In some places where the fluid lava lies at the bottom of a deep fissure, communicating on one hand with the surface and on the other with a cavern in which a considerable body of vapor has been formed, there may be an efflux of lava, followed by the escape of gas. Eruptions often commence and close with the discharge of vapor, and when this is the case, the next outburst may be expected to take place by the same vent, for the concluding evolution of elastic fluids will keep open the duct and leave it unobstructed. 
The breaking out of lava from the side or base of a lofty cone, rather than from the summit, may be attributed to the hydrostatic pressure to which the flanks of the mountain are exposed when the column of lava has risen to a great height. Or if, before it has reached the top, there should happen to be any stoppage in the main duct, the upward pressure of the ascending column of gas and lava may burst a lateral opening. In the case, however, of Mount Lower in the Sandwich Islands, there appears to be a singular want of connection or sympathy between the eruptions of the central and the great lateral vent. The great volcanic cone alluded to rises to the height of 13,760 feet above the level of the sea, having a crater at its summit from which powerful streams of lava have flowed in recent times, and having another still larger crater called Kilauea on its southeastern slope, about 4,000 feet above the sea. This lateral cavity resembles a huge quarry cut in the mountain's side, being about 1,000 feet deep when in its ordinary state. It is seven miles and a half in circuit, and scattered over its bottom at different levels are lakes and pools of lava, always in a state of ebullition. The liquid in one of these will sometimes sink 100 or 150 feet, while it is overflowing in another at a higher elevation, there being, it should seem, no communication between them. In like manner, lava overflows in the summit crater of Mount Lower, nearly 14,000 feet high, while the great lateral cauldron just alluded to, of Kilauea, continues as tranquil as usual, affording no relief to any part of the gases or melted matter which are forcing their way upwards in the centre of the mountain. How, asks Dr. Dana, if there were any subterranean channel connecting the two great vents, could this want of sympathy exist? How, according to the laws of hydrostatic pressure, can a column of fluid stand 10,000 feet higher in one leg of the siphon than in the other? The eruptions, he observes, are not proxismal. On the contrary, the lava rises slowly and gradually to the summit on the lofty cone, and then escapes there without any commotion manifesting itself in Kilauea, a gulf always open on the flanks of the same mountain. On conclusion, he says, is certain, namely that volcanoes are no safety valves as they have been called, for here two independent and apparently isolated centres of volcanic activity, only 16 miles distant from each other, are sustained in one and the same cone. Without pretending to solve this enigma, I cannot refrain from remarking that the supposed independence of several orifices of eruption in one crater like Kilauea when adduced in confirmation of the doctrine of two distinct sources of volcanic action underneath one mountain, proves too much. No one can doubt that the pools of lava in Kilauea have been derived from some common reservoir and have resulted from a combination of causes commonly called volcanic, which are at work in the interior at some unknown distance below. These causes have given rise in Mount Lower to eruptions from many points, but principally from one centre, so that a vast dome of ejected matter has been piled up. The subsidiary crater has evidently never given much relief to the imprisoned, heated and liquefied matter, for Kalawea does not form a lateral protuberance interfering with the general shape or uniform outline of Mount Lower. End of chapter 32, part 1. Recording by Sycamore Rockwell.